This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello. And thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 139, Finland, Ally to the North. When German Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop signed the non-aggression pact with Soviet Russia in August of 1939, Finland was relieved. Clearly, the two leaders did not desire war with each other, nor want war in areas to the north. Yet, as we now know, and Russia would not even admit to the secret protocols of the pact until 1989, the two countries had marked out spheres of influence. Quote, In the event of a territorial and political rearrangement in the areas belonging to the Baltic states, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the northern boundary of Lithuania shall represent the boundary of the spheres of influence of Germany and the USSR. Unquote. But what this agreement really created was a buffer zone, as neither side, rightly so, trusted each other. What's more, Stalin was given time to get on with the industrialization of his country, while Hitler got the freedom he needed to attack Poland. And both used their gains well. Poland was subdued. Soviet Russia went on selling its foodstuffs for finished normally German, goods, as well as having more time to bring the country and its military up to modern standards. But Stalin wasn't finished. After negotiations between Soviet Russia and Finland failed, and they were designed to fail, over a redrawing of their borders, plus Russia's leasing of the port of Hankow on the western end of the Gulf of Finland for 30 years, for the purpose of establishing a naval base, Stalin launched his attack against Finland on November 30, 1939. 
As already covered, the war did not go the way Stalin thought it would. But still, after bringing in massive reinforcements, the Russians got what they wanted all along. Finland, now humiliated and left exposed to any further Soviet aggression, started thinking of Germany as their only hope, which suited Hitler just fine, as he softly dropped his country's stand of neutrality towards Finland by August of 1940. And the deal Hitler begged Stalin to make became even more lopsided when Soviet Russia absorbed the Baltic states in mid-1940. Clearly, Stalin had gotten more out of this deal than Hitler. However, their borders now touched along many miles, certainly in the north. And Germany had an, albeit narrowly focused, potential ally in Finland. But then again, as we have seen, when Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov came to Berlin in November of 1940, he not only refused to fall for Hitler's suggestion that Russia look to the South for future acquisitions, but Moscow formally asked that Germany remove its technical help from Finland. In August of 1940, Germany had sent Finns help with their airfields and railways. Two key aspects in war, whether that war was offensive or not. This request would be used by the Germans to bring Finland into the fold. By December of 1940, Hitler knew he had an ally in Finland for his upcoming war with Russia. Moving on to late spring of 1941, the German forces in the conquered far north were given three basic orders. To protect Norway in case Churchill decided on some grand gesture. To hold fast the vital nickel mines at Petsamo in northeast Finland. The chemical industry conglomerate IG Farben was by then using 60% of the mine's output for their own war production. And to be ready to cut the rail line to Murmansk. The planning for the third order was well underway by January of 1941, with Colonel General Nicholas von Falkenhorst in charge of the Axis forces in Norway and central Finland. He had his staff prepare Operation Zilberfox, or Silver Fox. The idea was straightforward enough, but like most military operations, it would prove to be much more complex on the ground, even provided that the enemy played to part. When Barbarossa commenced, while Finnish forces attacked south on both sides of Lake Ladoga and hopefully tied down massive amounts of Russian troops, Falkenhorst's forces would drive toward Sala, a city just inside Soviet territory, just north and east of central Finland, and after that was secured, then turn north and make for Murmansk, thereby taking the port city away from Stalin's use. But before Barbarossa could start, Churchill indeed had his grand gesture. Yet the gesture was really cloaking an attack on a vital German war secret. And though the attempt failed, the results doomed any serious attack on Leningrad from the north. On March 4, 1941, the British needed to get their hands on an Enigma decoding machine. The importance of the signaling machine could not be overestimated, and proximity determined where the attack would be made. 
off of the coast of Norway. Operation Claymore, the retrieval of such a device, was put into motion. British naval forces made short work of the German trawler carrying the decoding device, managed to kill 14 German sailors and take another 25 prisoner, and even destroyed the local oil stockpile. But the Enigma device was not captured. The commander of the Krebs, Lieutenant Hans Kumpfinger, tossed it overboard just before being killed. Yet the attackers did manage to gather enough documents from the vessel to help discern how the machine worked. The spirit of the British public was improved. Of course, all they knew about was the general attack. But in his anger, Hitler overreacted by sending 160 artillery batteries to Norway and to make sure the country was kept out of Allied hands would not allow the 150,000 troops there to help in invading Soviet Russia. But for General Edouard Dietl, commander of the 20th Mountain Army, who had been in on the invasion of Norway, he knew he would need access to those men if he was to secure the nickel mines and capture Murmansk. So, during the spring of 1941, Dietl flew to Berlin to bring up the matter with Hitler. The Fuhrer was delighted to see the man, who was one of his more favorite generals. But the friendship did not help Dietl when he brought up those extra troops who would be needed in capturing Murmansk. Hitler laughed mockingly, and you can't blame the man. After all, his troops had covered many miles most days in France and would do the same in Russia, as he called the 60 miles from the border of Norway to Murmansk laughable. Dietl tried another tactic. It wasn't the 60 miles his men would have to fight through to capture the port city that worried him. It was the hamstrung logistics that would end up reducing his offensive power just when he needed it the most. First, his supplies would have to travel by sea to Narvik, if the Royal Navy let them get through. Then, another 300 miles of rough land would have to be crossed just to get the supplies to his starting point. It would only get harder the further he pressed into Russian-held territory. But Hitler was unmoved. So the general tried logic. If we take Murmansk, then it becomes useless. We're certainly not going to use it. We just want to keep it out of Russia's hands. We can achieve this objective by simply cutting the rail line south of the port city. Why capture it if we don't need it? Yet Hitler remained a stone statue and a parakeet. He simply said again that both the rail line would be cut and the city would be taken. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. 
With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When high-ranking German and Finnish officers met in May of 1941, each side had its own agenda, and the two didn't link up. The Germans wanted the Finns to invade from the north, on both sides of Lake Ladoga, help crush Leningrad, but then be ready to push farther south, if need be, at the very least to relieve German troops so they could get on with destroying the Soviet armies. Whereas Finland, and rightly so, just wanted their territory back. The German reply to this was, No, you don't understand. The question is much larger than you realize. For Leningrad will fall once we invade. In fact, the whole country will collapse, militarily and politically. Hitler's sure of it. Leningrad will probably be an open city before we even get there. Just like the main attacking lines of Barbarossa, and we'll get into these later, the various attacks in the north had their own operational names. Operation Reinter, or Reindeer, would secure the nickel mines at Petsamo, only some 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, from the Soviet border. Operation Plantin Fox, or Platinum Fox, would capture Murmansk, while Operation Polar Fox, or Arctic Fox would see and attack eastwards from north-central Finland towards Sala, the goal being to push to the sea and cut the Soviet part of the region in half. In all honesty, these various operations, besides having specific targets, had an overall goal, and thus an overall name. Operation Zilber Fox, or Silver Fox. Simply, Hitler wanted as many Soviet forces north of Leningrad tied down, so they could not be sent to help the city. If Leningrad fell, then the drive onto Moscow would have its far-left flank covered. If Moscow fell, Hitler could and would claim victory. The Finns were being used, but again, they only cared about reclaiming their stolen land. And in time, Germany would find this out. Operation Reindeer to secure the nickel mines, went off without a hitch. Starting on the same day as Operation Barbarossa, the two divisions of Mountain Corps, the 2nd and 3rd Mountain Division, moved forward from Kirkenes and Narvik, respectfully, and placed themselves in between the Soviet border and the mines at Petsamo. The 2nd Mountain was now up, close to the coast. The 3rd Mountain was to the south of Petsamo. Both were protectively to the east of it. The Russians, not that they were planning on taking the offensive here, were caught unawares by the German presence near their border. Now that the mines were secure, it was time for the next phase, Operation Plantinfux, the taking of the port city Murmansk. Yet it was also time for some deception. Instead of immediately crossing over and heading for their first objective, namely crossing the Litsa River some 19 miles or 30 kilometers into Soviet territory, the forces were held up 
for a week. This would allow them to regroup and hopefully exhaust the Soviet 14th Rifle Division, who would be staying up night after night waiting for an attack. Behind the 14th, the 52nd Rifle Division was hurrying into position closer to Murmansk. On schedule, on June 29th, the German Mountain Divisions advanced, supported by Colonel Nielsen's Luftwaffe units of 36 Stukas, 11 Ju-52s, 10 bombers, and 10 fighters. On the next day, the invaders, their left and right wings, both crossed the first river near their border, the Tatovka. But on the other side of the river was the unknown world, at least to the Germans, because that's where their maps stopped. Dietl knew this was a dangerous situation, should there be a counterattack. What he needed now was not a broad front, but defense in depth, which would give him time to swing men from his rear one way or the other, depending on where an attack came. So he ordered the 3rd Mountain Division to pull back and place itself behind the 2nd. Yet, there was no Soviet counterattack. Well, not yet. The Germans moved forward, slowly, cautiously. Still, there was no activity in front of them. No, the activity came from behind. The Soviet Northern Fleet landed troops in behind the narrow German offensive. The mines were relatively safe, as they were being guarded by panzers. It would be the infantry the Russians would pursue. Just like Hitler's goal of killing all the enemy troops, leaving the cities defenseless, the Russians were playing their own version of this game. Kill or capture all the invaders now. Take the mines later. By July 7th, the Germans came upon and crossed the Lista River, but there was no glory in it. They were only that much further away from their base and their panzers, and the Russians behind them were doing everything they could to cut the German supply lines. And before Dietl could work out a plan, the Soviets in front of him advanced and pushed his men back behind the Litza. Clearly, something had to give. Using seven battalions, just under 4,000 men, Dietl had them push back at the Soviets along the river, while the remainder of his troops attacked the enemy forces to their rear. The Germans inflicted significant casualties, but on July 14th, more Soviet troops were landed to their rear, making good their losses, and then some. It was the same story for the three army groups to their south. The Germans killed or captured hundreds or thousands, only to have them replaced far more quickly than expected. During the third week of July, von Falkenhorst and Dito got together and presented their case to Hitler. The Fuhrer agreed to release three regiments to them from Norway. What's more, the 6th Mountain Division, currently in Greece, would be sent to relieve the two mountain divisions. Then the Royal Navy shelled the mines at Petsamo, which prompted Hitler to release even more men for the Northern War. But it would take time to transfer all those men, and the Russians weren't simply going to wait. The situation for the Germans only got worse. In early September, two merchantmen, full of reinforcements, were sunk by Soviet submarines. 
Ships from the Royal Navy chased other German ships into fjords, which caused further delays for the Sixth Mountain coming from Greece. The results were the same in the air. The Luftwaffe could not make headway against the Soviets' 49 bombers, 139 fighters, and 44 float planes. Yet despite all this, Dietl renewed his offensive on September 8th, and at first his two divisions were doing well, having surprised the now-reinforced and therefore lax Soviets. The 2nd Mountain Division pushed hard, and then were replaced by the 3rd, who had been resting. But though they gained, it was little, and they were paying a lot for it. The advance was called off on September 21st. Dietl had his men find good defensive positions and dig in. The 6th Mountain Division finally arrived in mid-October, but by then, Operation Planton Fox had only moved 22 miles and lost 10,000 men. Meanwhile, to the south, by about 150 miles or 240 kilometers, Operation Polar Fox, Arctic Fox, was playing out. Under the command of General of the Cavalry Hans Feige, his 40,000-something men made up of the 169th Infantry Division, the 6th SS Nord Division, the Finnish 6th Division, two engineer battalions, part of a flak battalion and panzers, made for this type of region, were to move east from inside Finland, near Renamiemi, and take Sala inside newly acquired Soviet territory, on their way to Kandalaksha along the eastern coast, touching the White Sea. Feige and his men would be covered in the air by 30 Stukas, 10 bombers, 10 fighters, and 10 reconnaissance aircraft. Once the coast was secured, the attackers were to turn north and then help capture Murmansk, if help was needed. As Sala lay along a part of the Russian territory that bulged into Finland, the 169th Infantry would use two-thirds of their men to encircle the city, while the remaining third directly assaulted it. The idea was for it to fall and for no one to escape. That was the plan anyways. The attack commenced at night on July 1st, yet there was very little darkness as the days there lasted almost 24 hours. Just to the south of Salah is where the 6th SS Nord would be coming in. Yet due to a concentrated defensive fire, the Nord was held up and forced to retreat to reorganize itself. But before it could resume the offensive, the Soviets counterattacked on July 4th. It took the Nord, some Finnish troops, and men from the 169th Infantry to beat back the attack. But once it was contained... The men of the SS-6, which had only been expecting to do police duty, ran to the rear, yelling and screaming that the bridges should all be blown. Hitler, when he got word of this, went through the roof. But instead of having them shot, he decided to let the Russians do it, and ordered them back to the front. As yet, Sala had not fallen, so Feige launched another attack this time backed by panzers. Concerning the terrain, the roads were the only places the tanks could go, so it was determined to let them lead the attack 
to break the city's resistance. The panzers, artillery, infantry, and the Luftwaffe came at the town on July 6th. As it was clear these overwhelming forces would succeed, the Soviet 122nd Rifle Division left the town and left behind 50 tanks. As the 6th SS Nord was the only motorized unit, it was given the assignment of giving chase. Yet the 122nd Rifle Division made good time and slipped in between the waiting gaps of the Soviet 104th Rifle Division, which had formed a new defensive line. About 10 miles, or 16 kilometers, to the east of Sala was the long, narrow Apa Lake that runs north and south. The Soviet 122nd Rifle may have gotten away, but Faiga had the idea of creating an encirclement, or keel, just east of the lake. So he sent the 324th Infantry Regiment around, north of the lake, and the Finnish 3rd Corps around, to the south. The Finns went with creating smaller circles of entrapped soldiers, which worked well for them. However, the Germans to the north, possibly believing their way was more efficient, attempted one large circle. This lack of cohesion left many gaps open for the Soviet riflemen. The Russians again retreated east, starting August 22nd. But again, they were forced to leave behind their heavy guns and equipment. Some 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, further east, the Soviets made for the town of Alakurti. Yet the 6th Finnish and German 169th Infantry Division was on their tail. However, the terrain and the weak bridges would not allow the panzers to follow. This was down to men and their rifles. On September 1st, Alakurti fell to the Germans after they made a surprise invasion from the north. The Soviet riflemen moved on to the east. They eventually lined themselves up along the Vermanyoki River. The Russians had given up many kilometers of territory, but they had not been pushed back to the coast, to Kandalaksha, so could not then turn and help to the north. Some 60 miles, or 97 kilometers, to the south of this action, the same thing was playing out with different units, German and Soviet. The Germans advanced slowly, but lost many more men than expected for all their gains. Indeed, many Soviet troops were tied down, per Hitler's dicta, but as we have seen, that made little difference in the manpower the Stavka was able to draw upon to thwart the three main army groups. Next time, we'll watch as Finland fulfills its promise to Hitler to put pressure on Leningrad from the north. Of her 450,000 men under arms, some 230,000 would be put to this enterprise. And they outnumbered the Soviets protecting Leningrad from the north, who had some 150,000 men. But again, Finnish Field Marshal Karl Gustav Mannerheim's only riding goal was to secure his part of Karelia and his eastern side of Lake Ladoga. Along the Severe River, the Germans could have the rest if they could take it. The 
Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So before I go on and thank everybody, which I haven't done in a long time, sorry, just want to remind everyone that for everyone out there who's a member, who's getting the two extra episodes per month, uh, you're also in the drawing for the Harry's Complete Package, and um, I'll be doing that probably sometime around my birthday, September 21st. So I'll put it on one of the shows and do a drawing with my daughters. They really like that. And we'll pick us a winner, okay? So um, I just want to say hello and thank you to my latest members. Let's see here. Michael K. from Villanova, Pennsylvania. Richard H. Sorry, Richard. Um, it didn't tell me where, where you were from. Um, Tijman K. from Amsterdam. Heidi B. from Clarence, New York. Mackenzie K. from Denver, Colorado. Jane R. from Royal Oak, Michigan. Ben W. from Germantown, Pennsylvania. John M. from Sydney, Australia. Robbie M. Sorry, Robbie. Didn't tell me where you were from. Lars R. from Norway. James K. from Pasadena, Maryland. Ola B. from Norway. Peter V. Um, it didn't tell me where you're from, Peter, but uh, you also sent me the link for all the World War II movie reels. So thank you very much for that. Nicholas M. from Orinda, California. And Christopher S. And as far as those who have purchased CDs, I'd like to thank Michael W. from Western Spring, Illinois. He bought the Battle of Britain first volume. And Abel N. from Houston, Texas. So thank you both very much. And as far as donations, I'd like to thank Richard T. from Tampa, Florida. And, um, oh, and there's one more. Let's see here. Paul H. bought a Churchill mug. So thank you all very much for supporting the show. Um, again, it just justifies it to the wife to let me spend all this time on it. So um, I'll see you next Saturday with the next installment of uh, the World War II podcast. Take care, everyone.